0: Welcome to Stratfor's Essential Geopolitics Podcast. I'm Fred Burton. I'm speaking with Stratfor's Asia-Pacific analyst, Evan Reese. Evan, how are you holding up during our COVID mess?
1: Not too bad. I can't complain. The weather's good, and uh, we've been making remote work work really well.
0: Speaking of COVID-19, let's talk about the COVID in Asia. Having overcome its COVID-19 outbreak, what's happening in China now?
1: So the Asia-Pacific region in general is kind of interesting to watch with COVID-19. Of course, China's the outbreak zone where it started. So it has the advantage and the disadvantage of being the first country to emerge from its COVID-19 domestic outbreak. So China's case numbers are way, way down. There's some asymptomatic cases that have been reported in recent weeks and some imported cases from returnees from Russia. But other than that, the outbreak is pretty much gone within China. So now they're kind of left raking up the pieces from the last several months of disruption. A lot of economic activity has resumed, production, things like that. People are back in their workplaces with some restrictions in certain places. The thing that hasn't come back yet is consumption. People aren't buying at the levels that they did before the pandemic, with the exception of a few a few notable things such as you know, there's been surges in some auto sales and some property sales as people kind of emerge and spend the money that they'd planned to earlier. What China's really waiting for now is the other shoe to drop. China's very export-oriented. Uh, it's very tied into Western markets, the United States, Europe. And as those as those parts of the globe get hit by the virus pandemic, demand is plummeting. Their economic growth is being sapped. So China's waiting for that second hit to Chinese GDP growth that's going to come in the second and third quarter, that's really they're, what they're bracing for, that that sort of frustrating second hit coming up.
0: Evan, do you know, are Western companies, are they back operational in China?
1: I think a lot of them are, yeah. But one of the challenges is we have travel restrictions. So it's you can't really get in and out of China right now. So if they were in place, then they have likely been able to resume. But travel in and out of the country is restricted.
0: Let's move to South Korea. They seem to have managed the outbreak relatively well. How is it going to work to manage the virus going forward in South Korea?
1: So South Korea is also another important country to watch. For a while, South Korea was the worst COVID-19 affected country outside of China. Uh, but through a number of really proactive measures by the government, they have managed to become sort of a shiny example of how to manage this outbreak Uh, without the sort of, you know, the very restrictive nationwide lockdowns that you've seen in other countries. South Korea reacted very quickly when it had its mass outbreak uh, surrounding a religious cult um, in the city of Daegu. And they moved to limit public gatherings, implement social distancing, but more important, they implemented very, very aggressive testing, you know, some of the highest testing levels in the world, and contact tracing of people who were infected, publicizing so people can understand if they were exposed and get tests. And through that, they've managed to get their virus cases down to the single digits in the last uh, few days. And they're now looking at kind of the next phase. What do we open up? What do we leave shut? And that's going to start at some point in May when they make the call. And that'll involve continued social distancing, continued tracing and testing, and, and giving a little bit more discretion for religious institutions and businesses to open up with a lot of extremely detailed measures in place. The government has, has put out guidelines you know, down to the level of how you should seat people in restaurants, you know, not facing one another, but in a sort of zigzag pattern, things like that, to try to make sure that the virus transmission remains as low as possible.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. It seems to like there's a lot of lessons learned in following their model. What's, what's happening now with Japan?
1: Japan was kind of an interesting contrast and has been all along to South Korea. Uh, They have more cases now than South Korea has. And Japan was much less aggressive in its testing and much slower in terms of kind of restricting movement and restricting the opening of businesses. They rolled out emergency, a state of emergency nationwide uh, in March, but it wasn't implemented uh, very rigorously across the country. Tokyo, at a local level, has been pushing very hard for more Uh, enhanced restrictions to try to slow down the spread there, because that's where we've really seen the epicenter. But so far, Japan hasn't seen the massive surge in cases that you might predict. And there's a lot of theories as to why that might be the case. Some people say it's because they're not testing them as much and they're not really seeing what's actually happening on the ground. Some people are saying it's cultural differences within Japan. And some people are saying, you know, they just haven't been hit with their surge yet and they've been lucky so far. So as of right now, the emergency measures are still in place. There's restrictions on some movement in Tokyo and and the opening of businesses. And given the fact that the outbreak isn't yet under control and the government is seen as not moving quickly enough to deal with it, you've seen a massive hit to the popularity of Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. But I will add, given that the Japanese political system is so dominated by Shinzo Abe's party, he's not really going to face the electoral consequences that other uh, governments will because of this, at least not for a long time.
0: Evan, what keeps you up in the rest of Southeast Asia over COVID?
1: Well, it's really interesting. You know, once you move down to the Southeast Asian countries, you know, a lot of them have had cases for a sustained period of time. Countries like Vietnam have actually handled their outbreaks exceedingly well. Vietnam early on had a surge in cases. They partially locked things down. They restricted things and they got those under control. They got a second wave of cases when they opened back up. But then they put in those measures once again and they managed to get them back down and they're doing quite well and they're considering what their next steps will be now. You kind of move over to a country like Indonesia and Indonesia is a case study in of uh, not rigorous management of, of the outbreak. Uh, Indonesia has at this point officially 9,771 cases across the country and 784 deaths. But there are so many questions as to how valid those numbers actually are. Just in the last few days, somebody went back and started looking at the provincial level data, not the central government data. And they think that probably the death toll in Indonesia is upwards of 2000 cases, maybe even higher. So, yeah, so the, the level of testing and visibility that the government has in Indonesia, and maybe the willingness to publicize that information or even gather it is pretty minimal they didn't even really move to restrict a lot of movement within the archipelago until uh just in the last couple weeks uh you know Ramadan started uh recently and the tradition in Indonesia is to make a pilgrimage back to your home village your home area if you live in a city uh and until just a few days before Ramadan started that was going to be allowed the government moved at the last second to limit that and make sure people didn't make those trips but already millions of people had already gone so it kind of remains to be seen how we're going to hold out through the rest of the, the month of Ramadan. Uh, and Indonesia is going to take you know a relatively strong hit to its economic growth, and it's really unknown what the public health toll is going to be across the country.
0: How about Thailand?
1: Thailand's also another interesting case. So Thailand has been hit with cases really, really early on, um, and Thailand's in a bit of a delicate position because... They've recently transitioned out of military rule. The government in place right now is a civilian government, but it has strong ties to the military. You know, the prime minister is was formerly the head of the military junta, and there's a lot of sensitivity around using military powers. So they didn't trigger a, a nationwide state of emergency until relatively late, largely due to these sensitivities. But when they did, they implemented a curfew across the country. They implemented some restrictions on movement. And they partially locked down key cities like Bangkok and Phuket. They've managed to get their cases under control as well. And they're considering what the next phase looks like, looking at lifting some movement control measures, reopening some businesses. The big fear for Thailand now is, given the fact that the country is so heavily dependent on exports and so heavily dependent, most importantly, on tourism, what does a recovery look like for the Thai economy while the rest of the globe is still dealing with its outbreak? And maybe even after the outbreak subsides, are tourists going to be interested in traveling, particularly to countries that were badly hit by COVID-19, you know, even in the next six months or a year? And that's kind of the, the big fear factor for Thailand right now.
0: Evan, thank you very much for your read on COVID in Asia Pacific.
1: Thank you so much, Fred. Always a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Stratfor is a leading voice on the geopolitics of the coronavirus. You can read more about those topics by subscribing to stratfor.com slash podcast offer. That's stratfor.com slash podcast offer. I'm Fred Burton, and thanks for listening.